On Sunday mornings, we've been in a series um, throughout the year, the bigger, broader series, we've called it the Year of Biblical Literacy, which is a way of having mobilized our church family to read scripture, to engage scripture. For maybe some of you, I know that this is the first time you've ever read through the entire Bible. So those of you that are still on track doing that, good job, congratulations. I've got a little slide right here. I'll kind of show you a little bit where we're at right now in this journey, right now today, if you have been... Staying up to date, we should be on John chapter 19, so obviously we're in the New Testament, which is a different story, obviously, than the Old Testament. So similar, same same trajectory, different story about Jesus. And so uh, you can continue to jump in if you have kind of fallen behind. Uh, It's totally fine to just get jumped in right where we're at right now, if you'd like, or work double time to get yourself caught up. So, uh, But we've also been in uh, numerous smaller series throughout this year to try to help us understand, to equip ourselves to read Scripture, to engage with Scripture. Uh, Recently, we've been in a series in the Sermon on the Mount, just reading verse by verse, chapter by chapter, which is only three chapters, of Jesus' most famous, longest recorded sermon on what it really means to follow him, called the Sermon on the Mount. So what we're going to be doing today, as well as the next two weeks following, is kind of a little bit of a, a movement away from that, and then we'll get back into the Sermon on the Mount after that, we're going to be doing what we call our annual vision series. It's a way for us as a church community to kind of rally together, to think about who we are as God's people, what we see God calling us to do and to be on the Central Coast and way beyond, and how you and I can play a part, play a role in what God is up to in this world in being a part of his church. So that's what we're going to be doing today over the next three weeks, kind of give you a quick little snapshot as to what that will look like. So today we'll be taking a look at part one, the idea of what we like to think of as who we are, uh, that we are a family of sinners and saints who are being formed into disciples who love God, love others, and make Jesus known, otherwise known as living on mission. Uh, We'll unpack more of what that looks like today because that's what the message is today all about. Next week we'll take a look at what we do. We'll think about some of the practices that shape us and form us as Jesus' people, because believe it or not, uh, what you do will shape you. Right now, there are things that you guys do in your life on regular levels and basises and habits that you may even not even be aware of, but you just do them that will shape you, and they shape you right now into the people that you are. And then the last week, we'll take a look at part three, which is how, how we advance together. And this is sort of looking at the, uh, the current, if you want to think of it that way, of grace. And what does grace look like in our lives, and how uh, are we to respond to that by way of living in the pulse of what God's up to in this world? So with that being said, we're going to jump in. If you guys don't have Bibles, why don't you raise your hand? We have some ushers that would love to uh, ush you a Bible. You're going to need it today because there's a lot of passages that we're going to be taking a look at. We're going to be primarily in the book of Matthew, which should be familiar to most of you because, again, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, which is in the book of Matthew. So why don't you open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 is where I want to begin. I figured since uh, we are looking at kind of a vision series, I thought it would be best to just start with this uh, important character in the biblical narrative, a guy by the name of uh, Jesus of Nazareth. So it would be good to take a look at him. So um, anyways, that's it. Matthew chapter 4. Why don't you guys open up there. Uh, we're going to be beginning at Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. and We're going to read down almost to the end of chapter 5. I'll just make some uh, statements as we go through. Just follow along if you'd like. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't have an app or whatever, it'll also be up on the screen. So let me read, beginning at verse 12, it says this, Now when he had heard that John, that's John the baptizer, had been arrested, he, that's Jesus, he re, uh, withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun, which is kind of, think of it as a uh, 
It's like the, uh, the region where it was at of Naphtali. He says, and that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah was to be fulfilled. Goes on and he quotes this Old Testament passage from this guy by the name of Isaiah. It says this, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan of Galilee of Gentiles, the people who are dwelling in darkness, they've seen his great light. For those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them this light has dawned. So the narrator, Matthew, immediately connects uh, Jesus to this Old Testament prophetic word from this guy by the name of Isaiah several hundred years prior to this moment. And he's saying, look, this is, a, this is being fulfilled right now, that Jesus is the light. So I'm not sure who you think or how you think of Jesus. I hope that at least you think of Jesus in terms of categories of him being a light, the light in darkness. So that's, that's great hope, especially for those of us that from time to time, or moment, even right now, you may be in a state of darkness where your soul feels overwhelmed or contaminated by darkness and sin and death. The good news is that in the midst of that darkness, Jesus steps in and does something. We're going to read a little bit more about what he does. And then verse uh, 17, he goes on to say, From that time, Jesus then begins to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Which again, Matthew is informing us this is important because this is the first time Jesus speaks in the entire New Testament. These are the first recorded words of Jesus. And the first words off of Jesus' lips is not believe and go to heaven, believe it or not. It's actually turn from your sins and follow me. Follow me. You say, well, what about heaven? Yes, heaven. Heaven is... Uh, a, a response or it goes on. It's the afterlife of what happens after the choices that we make even in this life. To follow Jesus now in this life means in the afterlife we will be with him in that place called heaven paradise. To resist him now, to turn from him now means that we will be absent or far from him in the afterlife. But the point of the matter is, is Jesus invites people to turn from their ways that are inconsistent or incongruent with God's kingdom and he says, follow me. Not like, follow me on Instagram, follow me, but follow me. There's something unique about the way that Jesus says, follow me, that we have to think about. Because, again, language in our culture today, when we think about the words following somebody, or I follow somebody on Instagram, or follow somebody on Facebook, or whatever, what does that mean? It just means to kind of be a casual observer of their life. Is that what Jesus meant? Absolutely not. For some of us, maybe that's how we think of Jesus. We're a casual observer. Jesus is like an accessory where we accessorize ourselves with periodically when we need a little bit of Jesus jewelry or Jesus reality or religion or whatever. Jesus is inviting people into something way more in depth and powerful and life transforming than we can ever imagine. But we've just barely scratched the surface. Goes on to say, Jesus goes around for a walk around the Sea of Galilee. He says, then he sees two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then he, that's Jesus, says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately, just listen to this, instantaneous, they immediately drop their nets and follow Jesus. And he goes on to tell us, he says in verse 21, and then going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately, they also left their boat and their father, and they followed him. So what's happening here is we see that Jesus is what's known as a rabbi. He's a teacher. Maybe this is unfamiliar language to you. Maybe you've heard of this before. Um, I thought it'd be kind of good to think a little bit more deeply in terms of who Jesus was 
and what he was doing, and even a little bit beyond that, who Jesus exactly was in a bigger, broader sense. But to do that, I think we've got to kind of pause a little bit and ask some questions of the text. Like, what does it mean for Jesus to be a rabbi or a teacher? In some of your translations, it might say that Jesus was a teacher or a rabbi. Rabbi was a first century way of identifying someone that was a teacher. Um, I thought if you guys wouldn't mind, just give me like two minutes to kind of geek out on you guys a little bit about some ancient um, Hebrew background, backstory. I think it might be helpful for us to understand a little bit about when Jesus says, I'm a rabbi, and he's calling people to follow him, it would be helpful, I think, for us to unpack a little bit what does it mean to truly just be a follower of Jesus, which, by the way, just kind of as a side note, um, most of the time in our modern culture, if you were to ask somebody if they're a follower of Jesus, we would use the language of what to define that. What would you call someone who's a follower of Jesus? Anybody? Christian. We, we typically use the word Christian, right? Is that what you hear all the time? Christian. Oh, they're a Christian. And that's fine. It's, that the language is not necessarily bad. But in the Bible, the predominant word that's used to identify followers of Jesus was not the word Christian. It was actually the word disciple. A disciple was somebody that had given themselves, their lives, over to following Jesus. Not just simply believing certain ideas about Jesus, but truly, completely, whole life transformation, devotion over to this person of Jesus and his ways and all that he stood for. It wasn't just simply believing certain truths and ideas or concepts about Jesus, but it was a total, complete devotion of one's life to studying, to living, to following, to emulating. One of the best words I think that I would use to describe this that comes across in the most modern terminology that I think is the most accurate would be the word apprentice. So you think of somebody who's an apprentice. Let's say, for example, they're uh, an apprentice to a plumber. What's the aim of an apprentice to the plumber? It's to learn the ropes of how to plumb. So that someday, some point, at some period in that person's development and or apprenticeship, at some point they will be able to plumb a house themselves without the help of their you know, master plumber who's over them. But the aim is at some point to become exactly what the master is. That's very similar to exactly how it was first century with regard to our rabbi. So with that, I thought it'd be kind of interesting to think about a little bit of this path to becoming a disciple in the first century and uh, think about how this shapes our understanding of this. So there are three major steps in first century Judaism. So one other thing to think about is that this idea of being a disciple was not exclusively a Christian notion. It's important to note this. Because even uh, Plato and Aristotle, they had disciples. So there was a secular version of this. But even within Judaism, it was not uncommon for Jews to be raised up and to find some rabbi, whether it be Hillel or Gamaliel, whatever, to kind of uh, give themselves over to, to learn how they interpret scriptures and so on. So Jesus kind of steps into a very similar template that was available already in that culture, and he invites his disciples into something unique. So with that, we see eight children from ages four to five around. They had what was called Bet Safar, which was this idea of beginning to learn how to read, learn how to study, learning how to think, and processing. Kind of imagine like baby story tales and stuff like that, of helping them to understand some of the biblical stories and biblical narrative in which these three to four, five-year-old children lived within. Their moms and dads were responsible for this. Secondly, as they would go on from that, they would go to what was called Bet Midrash. Uh, this is also, the word Bet means house. So the house of learning is what this was. So within this particular context of Bet Midrash, they would begin to learn to study the prophets, the writing, the Torah, interpretations, the various interpretations from other famous rabbis and teachers. And then on top of that, they would begin to memorize. 
So imagine this. Uh, many of them, kind of like preteens or tweens and teenagers, uh, they would memorize large portions of the Bible. I mean, think of this. Think of this. Think of this today in today's context and today's culture. Many of us, we have a hard time memorizing scripture, um, but we do a really good job at memorizing like one-liners from the office, right? Or Parks and Rec. But the point of the matter is, is that when it comes to memorizing scripture, it's something that's really absent from us. That should be something, again, not to feel guilty over, but to at least just think about what, what are, what's really shaping us. What truly is shaping my mind? What's shaping my heart? What type of person am I becoming based upon what I'm feeding myself off of? Again, back in this culture, they would feed on Scripture. They'd be shaped by this. Now, the third thing, or third uh, avenue of this, or movement of this, would be those that would graduate from Bet Madrash. For the most part, they would go on and become a part of the family business. Uh, if they were not successful at Bet Madrash, meaning they either had a hard time learning, or they were not very advanced, or they weren't the cream of the crop, um, they would then go on and then begin an, an apprenticeship underneath their father. They would learn whatever trade or whatever it is that father has. So if a father was a, you know, a, 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 I don't know, worked cattle or had some sort of trade or whatever it was, they would learn that trade. And that's how they would then forge out a life for themselves. The third and final movement would be those that would rise to the top, those that showed uh, an accelerated, advanced ability to learn and grow and understand the Torah and memorize all these types of things. Then they would begin to seek out a rabbi to whom they would begin to disciple under. They would become a follower of that rabbi. Uh, the word disciple in the Hebrew was Talmud. Uh, plural of Talmuds is Talmudim. So Jesus' disciples were Talmudim. This is exactly what we mean by this. Or again, you can think of the word apprentice or apprenticeship. So in this particular context, they would find this rabbi, and then would begin to follow this rabbi everywhere. So the idea behind this would be to say, I want to be wherever the rabbi's at. So every time he's eating a meal, I want to be eating a meal with him. Every time he's on a journey, I want to journey with him. Every time he's talking to somebody, I want to be listening to how he's talking. I want to, uh, anytime he's reading scripture, I want to be reading scripture alongside him to see how he reads scripture. I want to know how he prays. I want to pray alongside him. It, the whole idea was to become exactly like your rabbi. In fact, they actually had a phrase to describe Talmudim who were following certain rabbis. So again, back in that day, for the most part, they had dirt roads. So as an as a, as a instructor or a leader or a rabbi would walk, he would, it would not be uncommon for him to have this a group of Talmudim following him. And as they would follow, they'd be so closely following behind him that they would literally begin to take upon themselves and be caked in the very dust of the rabbi. So it was a common phrase of saying, I'm, I'm picking up the dust of my rabbi. So again, this, the image is I'm so closely connected to my rabbi. I go wherever he goes. I do whatever he do, does. And I want to learn every way that I can everything that he does. Following? Make sense? How, how are we all doing? You guys doing good? So this is the idea. This is what it means to be a rabbi. In the same way, Jesus is inviting his friends, or these people that he meets, to follow him. Which, again, this is a really little bit of an interesting note to kind of pay attention to within the storyline, is where were these guys? Were they in Bet Midrash? Were they the cream of the crop? Were they the highest of the class? Where were they? They were, they were already working with dad. Which means what? These guys were not the cream of the crop. They weren't the best of the best. They were flunkies. They were not people that you typically would go out and start a revolution with. But Jesus calls them. I want you to pause and think about this for a moment. What type of people does Jesus call to himself? Not the best, 
Not the best looking, not the strongest, not the most intellectually advanced, not those that would look at their lives and catalog themselves as somehow being great people. Jesus calls the marginalized. Jesus goes to the people that are forgotten, the people that are easily not remembered, right? Those are the people who Jesus loves and calls. Paul later would identify it this way. He would say that God hasn't chosen, God, God hasn't chosen the greats in this world. He's chosen the foolish. The off the, the people that are forgotten, those are the ones whom God has called unto himself. That's amazing when you consider that and think about that. That means, what this means in a very practical way, nobody is below the standard to whom God calls. That is such good news. That means that you cannot do anything or be anyone that is so far below the standard that God does not look at you and say, I want you. This is amazing. This is what Jesus does. He calls these people unto himself to follow them. Now with that, I want to jump into the story line again. So I want you to turn forward to the book of Matthew, chapter 16. I want to read another little bit of a passage here about Jesus following, or Jesus' following of disciples. Matthew chapter 16. I want to pick it about verse 13. It says this, And then when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, So again, we just read that the predominant area in which Jesus had done ministry from was this place called Galilee. So Matthew just drops this little bit of information. He says, Jesus is now with his disciples in the district of Caesarea Philippi. If I had a map, which I don't, I'd show you. Oh, they do have a map. You guys are amazing. Yeah. What's up? Let's get it up for these guys. All right. So check it out. Um, So the Sea of Galilee obviously is right there in the middle. If you, I don't, okay, Caesarea Philippi, all the way up there. Man, you guys are so good. I didn't even ask her that. Like, you get, get an extra donut. Good job. All right. But the distance between this is about 30 miles. So I want you to think about this. And Matthew doesn't, like, blink or make any big issue about this. He just says, Jesus appears in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, it's 30 miles away. So I want you to think about this. How did they get there? Not by camel. Not by horse. Probably just by foot. All right? That's how Jesus got along, got everywhere where he traveled. So 30 miles is from here to Santa Maria is 30 miles. So just practical question. How long would it take walking with a handful of friends from here to, San, to San, uh, Santa Maria? Probably almost the entire day, right? Potty breaks. I got to stop and check out the surf. You got all these like stops. And this, Jesus, it just tell, it drops. It's like, so imagine what do you do for an entire day walking with a bunch of guys? Well, apparently Jesus is just talking to them. He's teaching them. He's training them. They're asking questions of Jesus. Jesus is giving them information. In other words, their lives are entirely consumed with Jesus. He's the center. He's the gravitational center of their entire world. And here they are with Jesus. And they go up to this particular region called Caesarea Philippi, which, again, Matthew doesn't really give us any detail or information about this, but Caesarea Philippi, we know, was the center of paganism, like most good Jews would not go to Caesarea Philippi uh, because of how wicked it was. It was a place, in fact, there was a spot there called the Gates of Hell where they would actually offer sacrifices to the pagan deities and entities there. So if you were a good Jew who follows Yahweh, the last place you would ever go would be Caesarea Philippi. But apparently Jesus has lessons to teach them. Again, he's the master. He's the rabbi. You don't, you don't tell the rabbi what you're going to do. You follow the rabbi. And the rabbi says, let's go to Caesarea Philippi. All right, great. We get there. Jesus then goes on to say, now when I get to Caesarea, he asks his Talmudim, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, 
am. And then they said, some say that you're John the Baptist. At this point, John the Baptist would have been killed, beheaded. And uh, some are like, maybe you're like this reincarnation of John the Baptist. And then they go, he goes on to say, they go on to say, some say that you're Elijah, this ancient prophet. Some say that you're Jeremiah, again, one of the ancient prophets. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter then replied, you are the Christ, which is an Old Testament idiom of saying you are the king, the one who's going to come in the lineage of King David. You are the king that's going to come to put all things to right. You are the king that's going to come to bring justice, to take care of evil and wickedness and darkness and death, and you're going to reorient it all around yourself. In verse 17, he says, Then Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he goes on to say, and I'm going to build my church, my kingdom, my community upon this, this reality. But here's a point that I want to make. Is a follower of Jesus, a Talmudim, a disciple of Jesus follows Jesus. Their whole world is oriented around Jesus. So what I want to do is I'm going to look at a chart. i got a chart for you guys. You're welcome. Um, and uh, so I thought this might be a little bit helpful. I want to look at, number one, just kind of break down the main de- definition of this, which is Matthew chapter 4, like what a disciple is, and then we'll give a couple other summary ways to think about this. So number one, what a disciple is. Remember, Jesus calls his, these guys who are fishermen, and he says, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, and says, and then they followed him. And subsequently, anyone that Jesus calls, it says, and then they followed him. So you can break it down into three particular ways. Number one, it involves following Jesus. Number two, it says, Jesus will make, so something about Jesus transforming those to who are going to follow Jesus. And then it, there's this reaction of actually following Jesus. So summary number one is we can think of it this way. Number one, being a disciple involves these three things. Number one, being with Jesus Being with Jesus, orienting your life around Jesus. Not religious practice, not religious duty, not religion, but Jesus. And then secondly, being like Jesus. Being around him, allowing him and his ideas and his reality of who he is and his personality and his kindness and his goodness and his love and his forgiveness to begin to reshape the sum total of who we are, to become like Jesus. Jesus, that's the aim of every disciple, is to ultimately become like their master. You you know this, right? And again, if we, in today's culture, we want to think about ourselves as being followers of Jesus. Again, if you want to use the name Christian, that's totally fine. But just make sure that you understand the word Christian in the context of its first century understanding and origin, that it's a reference to a disciple, a Talmud, someone that says, I want to be just like my rabbi. I want to pray the way he prays. I want to forgive the way that this rabbi in Nazareth forgave. I want to be able to study scripture the way he studied scripture. I want to let the scripture begin to shape me how scripture led and shaped Jesus. And then finally, it's doing what Jesus did. So what did Jesus do? He prayed for the sick. He anointed the the, the broken. He sought out those who are in the margins of society and culture. We call that justice. He does all of these things. He studies scripture. He's praised. He does all of these things. So nonetheless, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, at some point, it means to do the stuff that Jesus does. You know this, right? Like the aim of every Christian is at some point to become like Jesus that we do the stuff that Jesus did. How are we doing? Again, it's no, no, not intended in any way, shape, or form to bring any sense of shame or guilt or anything like that because that does not work. But it is important for us to assess our lives and ask, is Jesus really the sum total of everything in my soul, in my life? 
Is he what my heart longs for? Or have I bought into simply a religious system or idea or ideology? Jesus, what he's interested in our life, is nothing short of total, utter life transformation. You know this, right? This is how good he is. He wants to liberate us and set us free from those vices and sin and things that easily ensnare us and bring us down. How does he do this? By calling people, come follow me. And I'll make you into new people. And then the way that we like to say this here is this summary too, is this idea of it's loving God. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to really ultimately love God. Like, think about it this way. We ultimately pursue most passionately what we love. I was having a conversation just like this with somebody this past week. And I'm saying, look, if, if you want to understand why you do the stuff that you do, trace everything you do back to what you love. Because you can follow it upstream. You can begin to dis- discern. So for example, uh, in some context, it's a constant, ongoing battle. I talk to all sorts of people about, both men and women, porn. Like, what, why, why is porn an addiction? Why is it something you cannot put down? Trace it all the way back. It will take you upstream to a love, an affection. An affection, a love for the human naked body. Over, above, beyond the creator God that made the naked body. You've got you to follow these things upstream. What do we love? What has captured our affection? What are the things that we are passionate about? The things that have really, that those are the things that will then shape us downstream. Because then we will orient our lives. We will orient the practices that we do around those things that, we are, that we're affected by. That's what affection is. Affected by, and then we will begin to pursue those things. We'll become a certain type of people. So, we like to say love God. It's, just, it's where it all begins. That if God is not the center of our lives, if he's not the affection center of everything, then to begin to think about that, do what Jesus called us to do, which is to repent, which is just another way of saying, turn from the alternate narratives. Turn from the other stories that we oftentimes believe that are attached to other ideas and ideologies and concepts. Now, check this out. We live in San Luis Obispo. I've lived here for almost a little over 25 years. I love the Central Coast. This, I, honestly, it's like the, the best place to live. And, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm not the only one that has discovered that. Apparently, there's a few articles that are out there somewhere on the interwebs that also say the same thing. But the point of the matter is, is that I, I love this place. It's amazing. There are things about San Luis that are absolutely like a million times better than Huntington Beach where I grew up. All right? I love Huntington Beach, but way better. But the point of the matter is not everything here on the Central Coast. There is an ethic, there's a moral, there's an idea, there's a story, there's a narrative that governs the way people typically think here on the Central Coast. And again, without getting into all of that, but the point that I would make is there are some things that are absolutely amazing and beautiful, but at the end of the day, it's not the same thing as the gospel. So in other words, San Luis Obispo has a narrative that governs it. It literally is a character-shaping reality if you give yourself to it. The call of a follower of Jesus is to say, I'm not going to give myself to, as great as St. Louis is, as much as we love it, it will not be the thing that shapes me ultimately. Jesus will. And to understand that, you've got to think about what are the narratives that we give ourselves over to. And the invitation of the gospel is to give yourself over to this narrative of this God who loves us, 
who steps into our world to do something about the evil and the wickedness and the brokenness and the sin and the defilement to somehow rid us of that in order to reorient ourselves around him. So it's about loving God. Secondly, it's about loving others because that's what it means to be made like Jesus ultimately. And not just in moralism, although morality is important. It is a, absolutely, it is a part of the whole process of being shaped by Jesus. But it's not all and only that. It also involves this horizontal level of me interacting with other people. So this is one of the reasons why later on John, one of the people that Jesus calls himself, would later say, if we claim to love God, who we don't see, but we hate our brother, right? He says, we actually lie. That the truth is not abiding in us. That we've deceived ourselves. So there's something about following Jesus that involves becoming like Jesus, which involves loving other people. And one of the things, obviously, is you just follow the narrative of Jesus. He's always hanging out with the wrong people. That's deeply offensive to everybody. He's chilling with a bunch of prostitutes, not doing anything dubious, but only giving them dignity back. And to the religious people, they're like, what are you doing? That's defilement. You can't do that. Jesus is like, I'm giving them their, person, their personhood back, their dignity back. I'm calling them by name. I'm changing them, reshaping them, rehumanizing them. Jesus knew how to interact with people, and he loved people. That's definitely one thing that we can all agree without question that Jesus does. And finally, it's about living on mission, or in other words, making Jesus known. That ultimately, Jesus, we're told that he was sent by the Father into the world to go do something. And then later, Jesus would then finish one of the gospel accounts by saying, as the Father sent me, so I'm going to now then send you to go into this world and we like to think of it this way, just making Jesus known. That's our aim. Like, we want people to look at us. So when people ask, what is Calvary Slow Bow? What are the people of Calvary Slow Bow? Look, at the end of the day, what I, we, we don't want to be known as the megachurch. We're not ever striving for that. Or that it's cool and young or hip. Or, I don't, none of that should never in any way, shape, or form be of any concern whatsoever. What should preoccupy our affections, our heart, is that we want to be people that are like Jesus in every way that we act. Everything else falls short. Everything else falls by the wayside. We want to be like Jesus. We want to be about the stuff that Jesus is about. That's what it means to be a disciple, a Talmudim, to follow Jesus to the point where one day we will begin to do the stuff that Jesus does. Pray for the sick. Provide food for those that are hungry. Help those that are in the margins. Love those that are on the fringes. Party with the people that you shouldn't be partying with. Not by engaging in the stuff they do, but by rehumanizing them. Bringing them back to a high calling that God wants to liberate and set them free to be a part of. This is the stuff that we want to be about. So with that, I want to finish by just looking at a handful of ways in which we can think about. And I would love to uh, help you to think about ways that you can be invited into this. Just five simple things. Next week, we'll look at some main major practices that we do as a church community together that we believe that help shape us, help transform us into being the people that God wants us to be. But there's just some things to think about as well, well right here. Number one, practice the way of Jesus. Practice the way of Jesus. One of the first beginning places that you can just begin right here is just think about who, what, is, what does Jesus do? Well, we see that Jesus prays. He seeks the Father. Uh, he is always in communion with the Father. One of the things that Jesus teaches us to do is to live our lives in such a way in which the Holy Spirit's presence is always with us everywhere we go. We are never absent from God. God is never absent from us. 
One of the most simple ways that we can just go on and begin to live the way of Jesus is to even right now begin to just cultivate in our heart. It's what one writer, a guy by the name of Brother Lawrence, maybe you've read his book, it's called Practice the Presence of God. It's a fantastic book. It's like more like a pamphlet. But the idea behind that is to just simply live in such a way of recognizing that God is everywhere. So when you're standing in line at Trader Joe's, rather than looking at your cell phone, maybe be aware of the fact that maybe God's here. Maybe there are people right there present that God wants you to interact with and to dialogue with or to be a presence over or maybe pray for. If that freaks you out because you're an introvert, um, then just maybe pray for them. Just being aware, the Holy Spirit, are there, are there people around me right now? Is there circumstances? Are there needs? Are there those around me right now that you are calling me to pray for, to interact with, to love, to go buy a burrito for, to do something, to just show the kindness, the love of God? This is the idea of practicing the way of Jesus. One final thing I'll say about this before I move on is a lot of times people look at their lives and like, how do I become more like Jesus? And what happens sometimes is people hear messages like this, they're like, I just got to try harder and be more devoted and be more disciplined, and I'll be better. So what I would suggest to you, it's not about trying harder. Maybe it's about training harder. Here's what I mean. I think sometimes we hear messages like, we got to fix some things and areas in our lives, and I'm going to go out from there to be a better person, and we try harder. But what really needs to happen is we need to think about the liturgies, the practices, that we have established in our lives. And think about those practices, those things that we do on a daily basis or even weekly level. Uh, so we have daily rhythms, weekly rhythms, monthly, rhythm, monthly rhythms, and in some cases even yearly rhythms. What are the rhythms that we have that we are living into right now? Because those are the things that are shaping you. You know that the average American, well, I don't even know what it is, it's like 70 plus hours or whatever, maybe, I don't know if it's a week or what, of just watching TV or phone time. The fact of the matter is we are people addicted to these things. And I would suggest to you that these rhythms that we habituate ourselves into are actually shaping us into people. So maybe we need to think about training hard as opposed to just simply trying hard and begin to think about what are ways in which we can begin to incorporate new habits into our lives. Let me give you an example before I move on. So let's say, for example, you say, you know what? It's a new year, coming up on a new year, 2019. I'm going to be a healthier version of my present-day self, which means maybe by mid-year, June, I'm going to run a marathon. So you might have this big, high ambition to be like, you know what? I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to do really hard. But the point of the matter is you don't go run a marathon by trying hard. It's by training hard. So what happens if you're like, I'm going to go run a marathon with a bunch of your friends that have run marathons before, you will get to mile two, you'll fall down, and your lungs will be oozing out some sort of weird something, substance, because you are dying. You cannot run a marathon. You are not in shape to be able to run a marathon. But let's say, for example, you begin to habituate yourself, train, maybe start one day out of the week to run a mile, and then maybe a couple days later, or a week later, you run two miles. You begin to build upon that. And you have these goals, and you train yourself bit by bit, day by day. You eat. You adopt a better, healthy habit to eat better. At some point, you will then be able to go and do this marathon thing, which I think you're all crazy. But the point of the matter is, is that even if you're able to do that, I have high respect, but crazy nonetheless. But the point of the matter is this. You can't just simply try harder. You've got to train. And I would suggest the same as being a follower of Jesus we want holiness. We want to be people that resemble and reflect God. 
But what types of habits and practices do we do daily? Or as one author describes it, as, as habits of grace. What types of habits of grace or daily disciplines or spiritual formations are we engaging, like Jesus, that enable us to live the life of Jesus? So hopefully that makes sense. Second thing is for us as a church community, join one of our community groups. We have all sorts of small groups around the church that are constantly going on and constantly beginning. And if you are somebody that maybe, for whatever reason, you can't find one that fits your fancy, that's fine. Maybe start one, grab some friends, and start one. We're, we're happy to help train you. Like, that's kind of how we roll here. Like, we would love to help equip you. We've got pastors, teachers, leaders, trainers on staff. It's kind of how our church staff works. Is our aim is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. So if you want to start a small group, go ahead and get started. Grab some of your friends and start just doing it. And then begin to ask Jesus to help and guide and lead. If you need the training, again, we're happy to provide that. Uh, the other thing, kind of a layer with that, we also have an elements class. We call it um, an elements class, which is kind of like our growth track. It's another way of, of getting involved and understanding. It's kind of for at least three grades of people. Number one, if you're a brand new Christian, it's a great way for you to begin to understand the gospel. Secondly, if you're new to our church, uh, it's a way for you to begin to orient yourself and understand a little bit about how we function, the way that our church works, and how you can become part of the rhythm of our church family. And then finally, it's for people that may have been here on, around here for a while, but for whatever reason, you, hasn't, you haven't jumped in. Things have not clicked for you. It's a way for you to say, I want to really jump in and begin to orient myself to this church community that God's called me to, to be a part of here. So number one, practice the way of Jesus. Number two, join a community group or sign up for the elements class. Again, if you want to sign up for that, just go online to calvaryslow.com. We've got a simple link for you to sign up on that. Thirdly, gather on Sundays. Now, most of you guys are here right now, and you're hearing that, so you can check that box off. But if you think of it this way, gathering on Sundays is a part of a regular weekly practice or habit. It's a habit that we do, that's a practice that we do. And again, in the long run, you might look at it and be like, why do I got to gather on all sorts of other people that I don't even know on Sunday and listen to a boring sermon and not what I exactly want. But the point of the matter is, this is not always just about us. It's about us gathering together as God's people and about us habituating ourselves to develop habits to become the types of people that God wants us to become. And part of the church habit from the very beginning has always been to gather, typically on a Sunday morning, because Sunday morning rep was a day in which they remembered that was when Jesus rose again from the dead. Oh, that's right. We are resurrection people. We have had our lives hijacked by an entirely different narrative we are no longer people of the grave, of the tomb, of death. We belong to life. This is to whom we belong to. And we gather on Sundays to remind ourselves of that. To rehabituate ourselves into that story, that narrative. Because again, I'll tell you what. I mean, uh, the average American Christians, there's all these studies on us. They basically say that they go to church once every four to six weeks. So just think about it this way. Let's say, for example, you're the type of person that says, I want to be healthy, fit, and run a marathon. And someone were to ask you, okay, what's your, uh, what's your regimen? Like, what, what do you do? Like, I run five miles every six weeks. You're like, okay, that, you will never run a marathon. You will never be that type of person. If that's your workout regime, is just once every six weeks. Like, you're, I mean, there's too much lag time in between. You'll forget. Your body won't be trained. All these things will fall prey. And what I would suggest to you is that as we gather, think about it this way, to make it a commitment. A habit to be a part of the gathering on Sunday morning. 
to be a part of. Uh, this is what my wife and I did. And again, some might say, well, I'm biased because yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the pastor. I planted this church. And I, I, I admit, I may be a little bit biased towards this, but this is something my wife and I have always done from the very beginning. If we're doing a wedding somewhere far, we're going like, to be back. And it's not just because I'm preaching. I can always find other people to preach. But I want to be here. I want to be part of the community. I want to be part of what's happening here because I love this church family. And again, especially if you get older and you have kids, not that you have to be old and have kids, but let's say, for example, you have kids. Like, what type of message or uh, rhythms are you building into their lives, baking into their very existence? If, again, the average is just once every six weeks, what type of messages that communicate to your kids? It communicates a message very clearly that church is just not that important. It's really being a part of resurrection people is not a significant part of your life. Some might argue, it sounds like, Brian, you're really trying to suggest that Jesus is, are you expecting Jesus to be the center of everything? Kind of, yes. That's exactly what I'm expecting. Because it's not me that's expecting, it's Jesus. The rabbi says, come follow me. Come follow me. Orient your life entirely around me and about my ways. Fourthly, serve. It's been oftentimes stated, I mean, just in my experience, that the people that get the most out of gathering together, being a part of a church community, are those that are all in, even by way of energy, serving. Meaning they are somehow finding windows, finding ways where they can get involved, whether it be a small group, taking an elements class, serving on Sunday mornings. We've got lots of people down in the back serving in children's ministry. We always have needs. Again, we, we often have to say this, that over the years, one of the things we've identified for us as a church, as a church community, um, I would say that every four to six years, over 70% of our entire church is brand new. You know what that means? That over 70% of you right now in this room in four to six years will not be here. It means you'll be someplace else, you'll be in some other church, you'll be in some other city. And over the years, we've adopted this mind mindset that just says, we are here. One of the best things that we can do is to train people to be committed to this thing called the local church, to love it, to serve it, to find a way to pray through how can I be a part of and join a local community, a local expression. One final thing I'll say, kind of backtracking a little bit, about gathering on Sundays. There's lots of great churches in San Luis Obispo. So it's not a matter of like, I got to find the best church. There's a lot of amazing churches. Mount Brook's awesome. Grace is amazing. There's a lot of great communities, local churches, local expressions of Jesus in Slow. None of them are perfect. None of them have everything for everybody. But at the end of the day, if we find this consumeristic mindset that says, I want the best music and the best teaching, you're like, look, put that all, that's just consumerism. Drop that. Ask Jesus, Jesus, where do you want me to go? How do you want me to serve and love this local expression of Jesus and make it the best it can potentially be? Um, and then secondly, the fourth thing I should say is to serve. To ask God how to get involved, where you can anchor in and begin to serve and use your gifts, your talents, your energy to serve this local expression called the church. Fifthly and finally, this idea of giving, of give, giving to what God is up to in this world uh, again, for us, we say this all the time, that for us as a church, we, are, we have nothing to sell. Like, we are not selling stuff. We're not hawking, you know, nice clothing. That's not how we work. We work entirely by the donations of people. And what we have seen historically is between 7 to 11% of this entire community, we've got two services, of this entire community support 100% of the work. Think about that. 7 to 11% 
support this entire thing. So again, for one, I would just say thank you. If that's something that you do, you give faithfully, regular, thank you for the generosity. It allows us to do what we do. If it's something that you don't give, for whatever reason, again, I realize that for some of us, you're new here on this journey. This is brand new to even hear about something like this. Um, we, again, there's nothing but grace for you to begin to process and think about that and ask God how and where you can jump in and be a part of that. For others of you, you may have been around for a while. Maybe this, this is something that you just need to hear. Like you need to at some point jump into the pool, deep in, and just begin to contribute. Be a part of what God is up to in this church. And we would say to give. Whatever type of giving should always be done. Never with coercion, never out of guilt, never out of shame, ever. That does not work, and it's not how we operate. But out of joy, Paul would say, God loves a cheerful giver. It's this idea of giving uh, joyfulness. Secondly, this idea of generosity, giving with generosity. This is who our God is. God is a generous, giving God. And then finally, with regularity, giving with a regular consistency, because that's, that's how God gives all the time. Imagine this. This is Paul's template in the New Testament for giving is literally tapping into the very personality of who God is and says, here's how God is, here's what God does, here's what we're invited into. And all these things I would just say, these are, these are invitations. No guilt, no coercion, no shame, a fix, or attached to any of this. And please don't hear any of that. If in any way, shape, or form, it's ever sounded like that ever out of my mouth or any of the other pastors, any of the leaders in this church, then I apologize. Because it does not work, it's not effective. But our hope would be that we would be this community of Talmudim, disciples, who are so devoted to Jesus, our great, loving master, that we would want to be with him and be like him and ultimately be about what he's up to in this world, making his name known. He's, these are just some simple ways to be a part of that. I'm done. You're welcome. <laughs> we're all going to stand. I'm going to pray for us, and we're just going to respond by way of singing, we're going to respond by way of partaking of the communion. So I'm not even really sure where some of us are at right now, the circumstances or hardships or challenges that you may be going on in your life right now. But at the end of the day, the most important thing that everything is all about is Jesus. This always comes back to him. He is not just a rabbi. He is the king. He deserves our allegiance. But he doesn't force his allegiance or his power or authority upon us. He invites us to trust him, to walk with him, to love him. And I want to offer the same thing. So as we respond, the invitation for us is to just trust him, to take his hand, to love him, to press into him, to seek him. As we take the bread and the cup, to be reminded that what Jesus invites us into is not a torture chamber, but a table with food with a family. You guys, think about this. Jesus doesn't even invite us into a lecture hall, but to a table. That's the one major thing that Jesus gives us and says, each time you do this, do this in remembrance of what I've done for you. So let's respond accordingly, confessing sin to him, trusting him, praying that he would help us and enable us to be the people that he wants us to be. Jesus, thank you for your presence here. God, right now we want to devote our loyalty, our trust to you. God, we want to acknowledge the fact that there are all sorts of personality, life-shaping 
stories and narratives that are around us that we don't want to be part of. We don't want them to influence us. We want the Holy Spirit of God to influence us, to shape us, to become people like you. So as we respond now, as we sing, as we drink the cup, eat the bread, that we would be reminded of what we've been invited into by grace.